Okay, three, two, one. Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon, whatever it is for you. I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Uh, we had a huge weekend of sports. Uh, I have a lot to talk about. I'll be honest, I don't feel confident I can even get to everything because there's so many things we have to discuss and talk about today. Um, but I want to start with Monday Night Football. On Monday Night Football, the Seattle Seahawks beat the Minnesota Vikings 37-30. to And I think, you know, based on what happened last night, I think I'm supposed to go on the show today and just crush Kirk Cousins. I'm supposed to talk about how bad Kirk Cousins is and how he couldn't deliver in a big game, on a big stage, yada, yada. Um, you know, the, the, the statistic I saw, and, and it, it changed, you know, last night I saw that Kirk Cousins is 0-7 on Monday Night Football. He's now 0-8. He lost his eighth Monday Night Football game. Kirk Cousins has never won a Monday Night Football game. I think I'm supposed to take that statistic and say, well, Kirk is terrible. He can't win in a big moment. And then I'm supposed to point out that the Vikings had the ball with three minutes and 27 seconds left. They were down four points. They could not score. And the Vikings lost. Again, I'm supposed to crush Kirk. Um, but honestly, when the, when the Seahawks beat the Vikings and, uh, on Monday Night Football... I just kind of shrugged. I was like, "What? Well, I mean, ah, all right. Um, I didn't freak out. I wasn't mad. I wasn't disappointed. Uh, my emotional state was just like, yeah, sounds about right. Uh, kind of reminded me of when, uh, you know, this weekend, Jim Harbaugh and the Michigan Wolverines lost to Ohio State 56 to 27. And I was kind of like, yeah, that's about right. That's not shocking to me. That's not surprising. Um, I just kind of, you know, what do you expect from Kirk Cousins? What do you expect from Michigan football? I mean, for context, last night, uh, the Vikings left tackle Riley Reef went out with an injury. Uh, they also lost their running back. The Vikings lost their running back, Dalvin Cook. Uh, they had a top receiver, Adam Thielen, out with an injury. And so let me ask you a question. Is Kirk Cousins elite? No, not really. And would you expect Kirk Cousins to win a game missing three important starters on their offense, their left tackle, a top receiver, and their starting running back. Would you expect Kirk to be able to win that matchup against Russell Wilson, an MVP candidate, and the Seattle Seahawks who are now 10-2? No. No, would you expect? To me, Kirk Cousins is like, he's he's a B-level quarterback. He's probably the best B-level quarterback in the NFL. That's what he is. I don't know why we expect more from him. I don't expect more from him. Um... It just Kirk has limitations. He's not gonna. He's not Russell Wilson. He's not Deshaun Watson. And you know, Kirk Cousins losing some key starters down in a game against a really good football team. I don't expect Kirk to win that game. I, like I, that's where we are with Kirk Cousins. He's very good. He's not the best. He's limited. He's somewhere around of the second tier quarterbacks or the B level quarterbacks. He's maybe the best of the B level quarterbacks. That's what Kirk is. And that's not disappointing or shocking. That's just fact and that's honest. So, you know, I think a lot of people were upset and disappointed and we have the wrong quarterback. And yeah, maybe you don't have an elite quarterback, um, but I'm not surprised by the outcome. I just am not. Now, the real story to me last night for the Minnesota Vikings was that, you know, their offensive coordinator, Kevin Stefanski is phenomenal. And if you're a Vikings fan, you should be terrified that you're going to lose your offensive coordinator, Kevin Stefanski, to another football team to become a head coach. I mean, I look at the Browns right now. Just just imagine Kevin Stefanski, who's brilliant at building an offense that 
uses the players he has and uses their best skills. He's great at putting his players in a position to succeed. Now think about the Browns. They have Baker Mayfield, Odell Beckham Jr., Jarvis Landry, Kareem Hunt, David Njoku, Nick Chubb. I mean, oh my gosh, just imagine. Send Kevin Stefanski over to the Browns? What could he do? Like there, there's, a, there's a team in Cleveland begging to have the right coach. And there's a coach in Minnesota who's doing so well with the pieces he has in Minnesota. I, I just look at that and go, man, if I'm the Vikings, I am horrified and scared. You're going to lose your offensive coordinator again. How many times? This is Kirk Cousins' whole career. Kirk Cousins has some success. And then his offensive coordinator leaves and gets a better job. Whether it's uh, Matt LaFleur or, oh my gosh, the Kyle Shanahan or Sean McVay or Kevin Stefanski now. Like every time Kirk has some success, the offensive coordinator goes somewhere else and becomes a head coach. That's just what happens, and I think it's going to happen again here in Minnesota. I have two more things left I want to quickly touch on from Monday Night Football. Uh, number one is the Seattle Seahawks do something very, very unique. And I'm very shocked and surprised that other teams have not begun to copy this. You know, in the NFL, it's, traditionally in the NFL, you see something that works on offense and you go, hey, that's unique. We're going to copy that. People keep talking about how they're going to copy the Ravens and Lamar Jackson. They're going to get a running quarterback and build an offense around a quarterback's ability to run. That's a new thing. And a couple years ago, the thing was, we're going to copy Sean McVay and do what Sean McVay does because that works. And we see trends every couple of years in the NFL. There's a new trend. We're going to copy it. I don't understand why nobody has tried copying what the Seattle Seahawks do. They've had done this thing for a couple of years where they use an extra offensive lineman. Very, very frequently. Most teams in the NFL use five offensive linemen. Regularly. I think like uh, half of their snaps last night, the Seattle Seahawks used an extra sixth offensive lineman. Six instead of five. They're like, we're going to go in heavy, we're going to run the ball really well and use play action. And no other team in the NFL has really tried copying this, and it just it surprises me. I go, why aren't other teams doing what the Seahawks are doing? It's interesting to me. Now, here, that's, that's just food for thought. I want to put that on your mind, that the Seattle Seahawks do something unique, nobody copies them. Just that's, there's no real point to go with there. I just wanted to put that out there. Oh, hey, there's an interesting thing going on in Seattle that nobody copies. But here's the real takeaway from last night is that now the Seattle Seahawks are 10-2, and two, and the San Francisco 49ers are also 10-2. and two. They're in the same division, the NFC West. And I look ahead at the final four games coming up in the year for the 49ers and for the Seahawks, and they are on a collision course week 17. Week 17, the two teams play each other, and I think they could have the same record. The 49ers coming up play at New Orleans against the Saints. Then they play the Falcons, they play the Rams, and then week 17, they go to Seattle to play the Seahawks. How about the Seahawks? Their next couple games, they play at LA against the Rams, they play at the Panthers, they play the Cardinals at home, and then the 49ers at home. And you tell me, I think that the 49ers are going to go, you know, they're going to win two and lose one of their next three games. They're probably going to lose to the Saints on the road. And I'm not confident the Seahawks can win the next three games in a row. They're not going to beat, you know, at Los Angeles, at Carolina, and then against the Cardinals. One of those teams is going to beat Seattle. That's how Seattle works. They always struggle because they play the Rams and the Cardinals every year twice. They're in the same division. No matter who it is, who's coaching, no matter who the players are, the Seahawks always have trouble 
with the Arizona Cardinals. They always have trouble with the LA Rams because they're in the same division. They play each other regularly. These are two franchises that know each other incredibly well. So I think it's very, very likely that going into week 17, you're going to have the Seahawks and the 49ers both sitting at 12 and 3. 12 wins, three losses, winner takes all. And I, I, I am very fascinated how things are going to shake out in that division. Who's going to win? Because it's a big swing. <laughs> you could have the 49ers go, thir- uh, go 12 and 4 and be the fifth seed in the NFL and have to go play, uh, play one week and then go on the road to another team. Oh my gosh. Like you could have the Cowboys who are six and six right now. They could finish eight and eight, win their division, and host the 49ers in Dallas Cowboys Stadium round one in the wild card round of the playoffs. That's <laughs> absurd to me. Same goes for the Seahawks. The Seahawks are a good football team. So it's very interesting right now. Uh, the NFC West is a, a storyline to follow, and especially week 17. I, I really believe that the 49ers and the Seahawks are on a collision course where they're going to have the same record going into that game. They're both going to be 12-3, and three, and winner's going to take all in that division week 17. It's going to be awesome. I recommend pay attention to the NFC West. All right. Um, on Sunday night football, the Texans beat the Patriots 28-22. to And I have a couple things to say, a lot of takeaways. We're going to talk about the quarterback of the Texans. We'll talk about Tom Brady. And we're going to talk about Bill O'Brien the Texans head coach. I want to start with Deshaun Watson. In my opinion, the two most underappreciated quarterbacks in the entire NFL are Russell Wilson and Deshaun Watson. It drives me nuts. I understand people are finally starting to wake up to how good Russell Wilson is. They're like, oh, uh, yeah, you should probably, you're an MVP candidate. But I still think that's not enough. People do not understand or appreciate or respect how tremendously good Russell Wilson is. And then, you know, all week, everybody told me how amazing uh, the Patriots defense. They're so amazing. They're so incredible. Ah, ah, ah. And if you believe that, which I do, I think they are a good defense for the most part, then you got to recognize Deshaun Watson shredded them. <laughs> Deshaun Watson had four touchdowns. He played phenomenal. He just long drive after long drive. He had some big plays. I mean, Deshaun Watson shredded that Patriots defense. There are not very many quarterbacks in the NFL I would rather have than Deshaun Watson. I think it's maybe Russell Wilson. Uh, like, I, I really like if, if uh, today, if you're like, hey, Zach, who would you rather have right now? Russell, Will- excuse me, Aaron Rodgers or Deshaun Watson? I get it that on paper, Aaron Rodgers might be more talented. I actually like Deshaun Watson's leadership more, and he's younger. And he can do more. I think I would take Deshaun Watson over Aaron Rodgers right now, today, given their age, given the leadership qualities. I am all I am all in on Deshaun Watson. I love him. He's one of the best young quarterbacks in the NFL. People talk about Deshaun, uh, you know, Patrick Mahomes. He won MVP last year. Patrick, Patrick, Patrick. I think right there, neck and neck with Patrick Mahomes is Deshaun Watson. I'm a huge Deshaun Watson fan. I think he's massively underappreciated. Not only can he run and extended plays. People love, like, oh, he can run. He's a running quarterback. No, he's not. Deshaun Watson's ability, A, to throw the football. Wow. Go, go watch the, the Patriots and Texans. The dude can throw the ball all over the yard. He's got a great arm, and he's making great decisions. We've seen an evolution of Deshaun Watson throughout his time in the NFL. Um, I am so impressed with Deshaun Watson. He's checking the ball down. He's throwing it away. He's putting the ball in the right spot. He's picking great matchups. Deshaun Watson is... I mean, if not 
one of the best. He's definitely if he's if he's not the best young quarterback in the NFL, he's definitely one of the best. I think Deshaun Watson deserves a lot more praise than he gets out of Houston. Now here's what's funny. Uh, last week, the Texans were seven and four, and people in Houston were calling for Bill O'Brien's job. I had comments on video saying, "When are you going to talk about whether or not the Texans should fire their head coach, Bill O'Brien?" Fire Bill O'Brien. That's what I literally got comments and messages on Instagram about that stuff. And I'm like, Bill O'Brien? What? And let's it's just lunacy to me. You want to fire your head coach in Houston? What the heck is going on? They're eight and four. <laughs> the Texans are eight and four right now. They lead their division. They just beat the New England Patriots. And you want to get rid of Bill O'Brien, the head coach? I do not understand. I, I'm like, I, okay, like, go ahead. D- if you I mean, good luck with whoever's next. I think people are crazy. I don't understand. The Texans are the best football team in Texas right now. They're better than the Cowboys. And you want to fire the head coach who's right now leading the division, going to make the playoffs? I don't understand. I just do not get it at all. Uh, I was really impressed with the game plan that Bill O'Brien came up with on Sunday night, man. He had, first of all, the Patriots decided to double team Texans wide receiver DeAndre Hopkins. And Bill O'Brien said, fine. Do it. We'll take man-to-man coverage of Will Fuller and Kenny Stills all day. They did. They had a long touchdown. They, in fact, they really had two touchdowns in a row. One of them got called back. But, man, they, they took advantage. Like, you're going to play man-to-man coverage on the backside? We will take that. And then I was so impressed. To end the game, you know, the, the Texans are up. They're leading. It's first and goal. It's in the fourth quarter. On first and goal, they run a trick play and score a touchdown. And to me, here's what that says. The Texans said, we understand we're playing the Patriots. We know we have the lead. We're not going to let up. We're going to keep our foot on the gas and score points. And they ran a trick play, like a double reverse pass to Deshaun Watson. It was crazy. It was fun. It was wild. It goes down as technically a pass because it was technically just barely forward. Uh, DeAndre Hopkins threw the pass to Deshaun Watson. And it's like, that's so cool because to me it says, hey, we are going to be aggressive. We're going to go down swinging. The Texans were aggressive. They went hard. They took chances. They won. They took risks. I was so impressed. Like, yes, Bill O'Brien. Yes. Finally, against the Patriots, he went balls to the wall, played phenomenal. Uh, excuse me, coached phenomenal, took risks. And I was like, okay, I get it. I'm all in. I don't understand it. From my seat today, I do not understand where the narrative comes from why people in Houston want to fire the head coach, Bill O'Brien. I don't get it. He's phenomenal. He consistently makes the playoffs. He consistently wins that division. Um, to me, he's the guy. And you're not going to get a better guy anytime soon in Houston. So I just don't get why Houston refuses to embrace their head coach. I just don't get it. Now, the, here's the final thing I want to take away from Sunday Night Football. Oh, People keep telling me the same thing. People keep telling me that Tom Brady is the issue with the New England Patriots offense. And I just cannot stand it. It drives me nuts. They throw stats at me. They're like, Tom Brady's completion percentage isn't very good. Look at his incompletions. And I say, yes, look at his incompletions. Why is he throwing incomplete passes? Why is his completion percentage so low? How about you actually take a look and watch? It drives me nuts. You're either not watching the games or you don't understand what you're watching when you watch the Patriots play football. Here's how you stop the Patriots offense. It's very simple. You double-team Julian Edelman. That's it. (laughs) That's all you got to do. You double-team Julian Edelman. Bam. Ball game. You won. The Patriots do not have another receiver 
who can beat man coverage. They have James White, who's a running back, who's very good in the running game, who's, excuse me, in the passing game. Yes, okay, so they have two weapons. <laughs> Fair enough. They don't have anybody else. And even, like, Nikhil Harry is a rookie receiver who I was really excited about out of Arizona State. He's not cutting it. He's not doing good enough. He had a play where you're in an in-cutting route. He had a defender behind him. Tom Brady throws the ball inside on a dig. It's an in-cutting route. And Nikhil Harry allowed the defender to jump the route, get in front of him, and out-position him and grab an interception. Nikhil Harry, Tom Brady threw an interception on Sunday night, and people don't understand. That's not Tom Brady's fault. That's Nikhil Harry getting out-positioned again in man coverage and allowing a defender to take the ball away from him. Not to mention, by the way, receivers are dropping passes, and they're missing signals. They're running the wrong routes. Tom Brady's throwing the ball nowhere near receivers because they're literally in the wrong spot. If I'm Tom Brady, I'm furious, and he is. Watch on the sidelines. Tom Brady's an angry human. He is not happy. And for good reason. He's not getting the help he needs from his team. I just, oh man, I, I, can't, I cannot understand how people can watch the Patriots and say it's Tom Brady's fault. It's so wild to me. They blame Brady. It's like, man. And then he, it makes it worse that the Patriots, the fact that they used to have Antonio Brown and Josh Gordon on their team, and they don't. And right now, their number one problem is they don't have a receiver who can win outside. It's like, what in the world? <laughs> you had the answer on your roster, and you let him walk away. You let him leave. It's like, ah. Oh. It's not, I get the reasons behind why they left, let Antonio Brown go. It's a PR nightmare. But, man, it's still like you let, <laughs> you let your answer walk out of the door. The offensive line is a mess. Another thing, people, it's like, look at Tom Brady's incompletions. When he throws incomplete passes, why are they happening? A lot of the time, it's because Tom Brady's under pressure, and he's just getting rid of the ball before he gets sacked. He's throwing as he gets thrown to the turf. He's throwing the ball away to avoid a sack. It happens regularly. And he's very strategic with how he does it. You know, he throws the ball at Julian Edelman's feet. He's like, I can't get the ball to you, Julian, but I can throw in your direction so it's not intentional grounding. His receivers have been awful. His offensive line has been awful. And the general public doesn't seem to understand. They're like, well, Tom Brady is not the same. Look at his numbers. Shut up. Numbers are not everything. There's always a reason behind the numbers. The reason behind the numbers is Tom Brady has receivers that can't win one-on-one matchups. They're running the wrong routes. They're missing his hand signals. They're a mess. His offensive line is bad. I look at the Patriots today and go, I really hope Tom Brady leaves. I'm a, I'll, I'll admit it. I love Tom Brady. I think he's awesome. I, I'll, you either hate him or you love him. I fall on the train. I'm not a Patriots fan at all, but I really like Tom Brady, and I would love to see Tom Brady leave and go to a better football team that has a, excuse me, how about this, a better offense that can actually help their quarterback win games. It drives me nuts. I just cannot, I cannot fathom. I cannot understand how people possibly watch the Patriots and say, it's Tom Brady's fault. Tom Brady's not good enough. Do you watch the games? That's all I have. I, I just rest my case. I just cannot fathom and I cannot stand the way that people blame Tom Brady. It's not his fault. He <laughs> watched the games. I just, man, I'm, I'm sick of, I'm becoming a dead horse to say the same thing every time. It's not Tom Brady's fault that the Patriots offense is struggling. Okay, uh... Week one, the Jacksonville Jaguars starting quarterback Nick Foles got hurt. It was literally like during the first quarter of the game. Uh, he hurt his, hurt his shoulder out for, out for a long time. And he was replaced by Gardner Minshew. 
And a lot of people were surprised when Gardner Minshew came in and did really, really well. I was not. I did a film analysis of him in college. He's really good. Um, but in that time, he played and replaced Nick Foles. He had 13 touchdowns, four interceptions. He went 4-4 four and four as a starter. And he lifted up the Jaguars team. They didn't win a ton. They were 4-4 four and four with him. But, man, the key to me was that the Jaguars' offensive line is not very good. And Gardner Minshew was able to run around and extend plays and keep plays alive and turn what would have been a sack into a big gain downfield. He can create plays that are—he can turn a negative play and create and turn it into a positive play. Now, week 10 during the bye week, they said, Hey, Gardner, we like you. You're doing well. The whole fan base loves you, but we're going to bench you. <laughs> we're going to go with Nick Foles. We're on our bye week. Nick Foles is now healthy. Week 11, we're going to start Nick Foles. And that's what they did. And uh, I didn't like the move, but I understood, okay, the Jaguars are paying Nick Foles a ton of money. They paid him a gigantic contract. They brought him in to be their starting quarterback. He, he can't lose his job to injury. I, fine, whatever, I guess. Okay, Nick Foles is now the guy. I think it's the wrong move, but whatever. And week 11, the first start back with Nick Foles, the, the Jaguars lost to the Colts 31-13. to I was like, oh, that's not good. And, and the little thing I noticed is, oh, Nick Foles struggles with pressure. He can't get away from pressure the way Gardner Minshew could. And then the next week, the Jaguars lost to the Titans, 42-20. to Interesting. At that point, the Jaguars are now 0-3 in games where Nick Foles is the starting quarterback. Then on Sunday, they just played the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And in the Jaguars' first three possessions, <laughs> Nick Foles had three turnovers. He had an interception. He had two fumbles. One of those fumbles got returned for a touchdown. He was literally, instead of scoring points, he was giving the other team points. And after those first three possessions, he had three more. And those next three possessions, he went three and out. First down, second down, third down, no conversion, you punt. Four plays, other team's ball. So at halftime, it was 25-0. to zero. The Jaguars were losing 25-0. to zero. And they said, hey, you know what? It's not working with Nick Foles. We're going to put Gardner Minshew in. Oh, what a shock. Really? You mean the guy who's better? You're going to play the better quarterback. About time. And my first reaction was like, just like that. I was like, oh, God. of course. You got to play the better quarterback. And I was kind of frustrated. Like, yeah, you didn't realize a long time ago you should have played Gardner Minshew. And here's what happened. Gardner Minshew came in, had two scoring drives, had a, had a touchdown, had a field goal drive. Then later in the game, he took the team all the way down the field. It was third and goal. He threw a pass into the end zone. It bounced off his receiver's hands, got intercepted. Really, I think Gardner Minshew should have led three scoring drives in that game. Only, only led two because one of them was picked off after hitting his receiver's hands. And to me, it was incredibly satisfying to watch Gardner Minshew succeed. It was, like, it was vindicating. I was like, ah, exactly. I did a film analysis about Gardner Minshew. I, I said, look, he's better than Nick Foles. He should be playing, but I understand why he's not. The money makes sense. I get it. And I was, I was really frustrated at first watching Gardner Minshew not play because, in my opinion, he's the better quarterback in Jacksonville. Now, here's the reality. The Jaguars are now 0-4 with Nick Foles as their starting quarterback this year. When, ja when Nick Foles starts, they lose games. Now, people struggle to embrace Gardner Minshew, the now starting quarterback of the Jacksonville Jaguars. He has an average arm. His arm strength isn't what I would love to see. And he was a sixth-round pick. 
Who is this guy? Who is this Gardner Minshew guy? Why does he have the right to be the starting quarterback of the Jaguars? People have a hard time embracing him in the media especially. Even former quarterbacks. I go, what are you looking at? But here's what I see. Gardner Minshew galvanizes that football team. He brings an energy to the Jaguars that Nick Foles doesn't bring. And his ability to extend plays, to avoid sacks, and escape pressure makes him more successful. So the Jaguars have named Gardner Minshew to be their starting quarterback next week. And again, my first reaction was, finally, about time. But then I took a step back and I realized, hmm, it's actually good Gardner Minshew didn't play for, in the last three weeks for the Jaguars. It's good that Gardner Minshew was not named the starter when Nick Foles came back. The Jaguars actually did Gardner Minshew a gigantic, gigantic favor. Just imagine if when Nick Foles came back from an injury, they'd gone with Gardner Minshew. Imagine the pressure. Imagine what would have happened any time Gardner Minshew missed a throw or had some miscue or something went wrong. Everybody would just be looking around going, you got Nick Foles on the bench. You're paying Nick Foles $52 million guaranteed. Why aren't you paying Nick Foles? Everybody would have been waiting for the minute they go back to Nick Foles. Instead, they went with Nick Foles when he returned from the injury, and we got definitive proof. Oh, we've seen Nick Foles a lot this year. He started four games for the Jaguars. They've lost all four, and he hasn't moved the ball as well as Gardner Minshew. So now if Gardner Minshew struggles, you can say, there's no argument now to be like, well, we got to bring Nick Foles back. You can say, we already tried that. We did it. It didn't work. The fans want Gardner Minshew. We've seen proof that Gardner Minshew is a better quarterback who moves the ball better. He is a better leader, a more galvanizing leader. Gardner Minshew's the guy. The Jaguars made it even more easy to now support Gardner Minshew and more difficult to support Nick Foles. That's what happened. I, I think that the... I don't think this is actually what the Jaguars wanted. My guess is the Jaguars front office really wanted to rally behind Nick Foles and have him be the guy. Clearly, they paid him a four-year deal, $88 million, $52 million guaranteed. They wanted Nick Foles to be the guy. But their plan, you know, forcing Nick Foles back into the starting role when really Gardner Minshew was playing better, backfired on them. And now it's going to be even harder to ever, ever embrace Nick Foles. Because <laughs> again, we've seen that story. It doesn't work. So, man, I really think that, you know, three weeks ago, if you'd played Gardner Minshew, opinions would have been split. People would have been like, I like Minshew, but what about Nick Foles? He's on the bench. Now, because they played Nick Foles, we know how good he, or really how bad he is and how much he's not the answer in Jacksonville. Because they let Nick Foles play, it's going to be harder for him to ever come back. So I think the Jaguars are four and eight. That's not very good. They're not a good football team. And they have four games left. They're not going to win all four games. Gardner Minshew's not the secret sauce that's magically going to win a bunch of games for the Jacksonville Jaguars. He's okay. He's really good. I like him. I think he's a better quarterback on their roster. If I'm the Jaguars, I embrace Gardner Minshew and I build around him. I really do. But the pressure's now off Gardner Minshew. He doesn't need to win. He's been handed a bad football team, and all he has to do is do better than Nick Foles. <laughs> He has to move the ball well and score some points. That's all he has to do. Hopefully he wins. I, I would love to see that. But the reality is if the Jaguars want to win games the rest of this year, Gardner Minshew gives them a better opportunity to win football games than Nick Foles did because of his ability to extend plays and move around. And also, 
his galvanizing leadership, the way he rallies his troops and rallies his football team, Gardner Minshew is significantly better as a starting quarterback in Jacksonville than Nick Foles was. All right. Um, it's really interesting to me. Um, the Jacksonville Jaguars seem to rally behind Gardner Minshew. They say, Gardner, we like you better. The team plays better with Gardner at quarterback. And in Miami right now with the Dolphins, the Dolphins play better when Ryan Fitzpatrick is their quarterback. Ryan Fitzpatrick and Gardner Minshew galvanized their football team. The definition of galvanize is to shock or excite someone into taking action. To shock or excite someone into taking action. You bring energy. You rally your football team. Gardner Minshew and Ryan Fitzpatrick galvanize their football teams. You know, Ryan Fitzpatrick just rallied the Dolphins. They beat the Eagles on Sunday. It was really, really cool. They won 37-31, to 31, I believe. And you know who looks bad right now? As Ryan Fitzpatrick leads the Dolphins to victories, you know who looks really bad right now? It's Josh Rosen, the backup quarterback in Miami. <sighs> Josh Rosen is not a galvanizer. And don't say because he's a young player. Like the reason why, you know, the reason why Nick Fol- like, Josh Rosen can't be good enough and lead the team in Miami is because he's a young player. If that was true, then Gardner Minshew wouldn't work. Gardner Minshew is a younger player in Jacksonville. He's galvanizing his football team. The question is, why can't Josh Rosen do the same thing? Here's the reality of Josh Rosen. On the field, like just strictly when you look at the film, he's a typical young quarterback. He's got issues. Like if you do, I did a film analysis of him, and he's got issues, but in theory... Josh Rosen could improve and become a better quarterback, have better timing, be more accurate, better footwork, yada, yada, better understanding of defenses. On paper, in theory, Josh Rosen could become a better quarterback. Now, I also want to acknowledge Josh Rosen's lack of mobility is a big problem. He can't run. He can't extend plays. He's limited. He needs a good offensive line. And in this, this, today's day and age in the NFL, I don't think that's really going to work. I just think you need a guy who can move a little bit more. But here's the reason I have now given up on Josh Rosen. That has nothing to do with the way he plays. It's not about the film. It's actually not about his lack of mobility. It's this one thing. Josh Rosen is not a galvanizing quarterback. He doesn't rally the people around him. It's the honest truth. Look at UCLA. He was a quarterback at UCLA for multiple years. And there were concerns about his leadership there. He had one winning season at UCLA. (laughs) That's not good. And then last year, he was drafted by the Arizona Cardinals. He was their quarterback for a year. And they got rid of him. They didn't believe in him. They traded him away and drafted Kyler Murray. And don't tell me, well, they they just loved Kyler Murray so much. I'm sure they did love Kyler Murray. But the truth is that if the Cardinals had believed in Josh Rosen, they would have kept him. Because they could have drafted Nick Bosa and had a franchise quarterback. No, the truth is the Cardinals didn't believe in Josh Rosen as a quarterback. That's a big red flag. One that I've ignored for too long. And now in Miami, I watched the Dolphins play on Sunday against the Eagles. They follow Ryan Fitzpatrick. They don't follow Josh Rosen. It's clear to me Josh Rosen's personality is not one of a galvanizing quarterback. 
He doesn't bring energy and rally his football team. To me, that's enough. I have given up on Josh Rose. And again, at UCLA in college, had concerns about leadership. He only had one winning season. He's not exciting the people around him. In Arizona, the people didn't believe in him. They got rid of him. And here in Miami, he's getting shown up by another quarterback. Ryan Fitzpatrick rallies the team better than Josh Rosen does. The team doesn't believe in Josh Rosen. He's not the same personality that Gardner Minshew is to rally a football team and carry them and have them believe in him. To me, that's three strikes around. College, Arizona, Miami, three strikes. I'm done. I don't believe in Josh Rosen. It's not going to work. He doesn't have the personality it takes to be a franchise quarterback in the NFL. I, I just, look, that's, what I, that's my opinion, but leadership really, really matters at the quarterback position and he is not a galvanizing leader at the quarterback position. That's enough for me to say, hey, Josh Rosen, you've been on two teams. You're probably going to go to a third. It's not working. I don't think it's going to work. Your personality, the way you lead, is the problem. Josh Rosen is not a galvanizing leader at quarterback. And for that reason, I'm out. All right. Um, I'm going to take a break in a minute, but I first want to say one more thing. Because it's about the Dolphins. I'll stick with it for a second. Um, I've defended the, I've defended the New York Giants head coach, Pat Shermer for a long time. And I, in the past I said, look, you can't judge him on his record as a coach, his all-time record, because he coached in Cleveland. And I said, look, if you look at his all-time record, do you account for Cleveland? It's not really fair because it was one, it was Cleveland, bad ownership, horrible franchise, and he didn't have a quarterback. He had Jake DeLone was washed up. He had Seneca Wallace and Colt McCoy. Those are not good quarterbacks in Cleveland. And then I'll say, well, last year he coached with the Giants and he had a, a washed-up Eli Manning who was, I think, better than people realize, but still old and had a bad offensive line, so he was not mobile at all. And then I said, well, this year, Pat Shermer has a rookie quarterback and a mediocre offensive line, and you got to just give it time. you got to say, hey, he's got to have time to develop the young quarterback. And I've said, look, I, I've been very clear. I think the Giants should keep Pat Shermer. And I've gotten a lot of pushback, and I've been listening. And the number one thing that people say in response to me saying, keep Pat Shermer, people respond with, uh, but Zach, us Giants fans are not seeing progress. We get it. You like it, Daniel Jones. We get it that you think you should have continuity, but we're not seeing a Giants team get better. We're not seeing progress from their team. And I admit that's fair. Okay, you want to push back on me? I, I agree with that. That's very valid and very valid criticism of Pat Shermer. And then I look at the <laughs> Miami Dolphins. They're three and nine, but it's a good three and nine. I know at three and nine, even though they're losing, the Dolphins have the right head coach. You know, they started 0 and 7. And in the last five games, the Dolphins have gone three and two. The Dolphins are beginning to learn how to win football games, and they're well coached. It comes out. Guys are in the right spot. They're not very talented, but they're making progress. You know, the Dolphins running back is a guy nicknamed the intern. It's Patrick Laird. And one time he had dinner with the interns, and the interns didn't know who he was. They couldn't tell he was a running back. And they said, uh, so Patrick Laird, what's your role here with the Dolphins? Are you an intern? What do you do? And so he got the nickname The Intern because he walked on at Cal. He has been a surprise with the Dolphins. He's not very talented. He's a guy who's taken advantage of the opportunity and worked hard. He's a very, honestly, kind of Patriots-type player. 
And ironically enough, Brian Flores, the head coach of the Dolphins, came from New England, came from the Patriots. And it looks like he's doing the same thing they were doing, which is like, hey, we don't need to be the most talented. We got to be well coached. We got to be in the right spot. We got to be disciplined. The Dolphins are doing all of those things. The Dolphins are right now are top five, and as they are a top five least penalized team in the NFL. And by the way, that guy, the intern who's nobody, walked on at Cal, scored the game winning touchdown on Sunday against the Eagles. The Dolphins are very clearly well coached. They're in the right spots. They're making progress and getting better as a football team. And I'll tell you what, man, it's hard to watch Brian Flores and support Pat Shermer. Brian Flores in Miami's making Pat Shermer, the head coach of the Giants, look bad. The Giants are 2-10. and ten. They're not getting better. They're on a seven-game losing streak. They ran a play on Sunday late in the game in the fourth quarter. They gave the ball to a guy who just got there, who's been there four days. I can't remember the guy's name. He literally just got to the Giants four days ago. They ran a, like a fly sweep with him. He fumbled. They lost eight yards. It became third and 18. Situationally, the Giants have appeared disorganized and messy. I would still argue, if I'm a Giants fan, I would want to keep Pat Shermer for this one reason. But I'm running out of reasons. I, I acknowledge it's, it's getting harder and harder every week to argue to keep Pat Shermer. Here's why I would keep him. You have a rookie quarterback, and it's really important for him to have continuity going into next year. To have the same coach for a second year, it matters. It's a huge deal. I would not get rid of your head coach. To make Daniel Jones learn a new offense going into year two, is, it just seems like bad news to me. I wouldn't make him do that. To me, I'm pleading, like, for the sake of your quarterback, don't get rid of the head coach. Give it one more year. But I do acknowledge, I have to acknowledge, because people are criticizing me, and they're right is the Giants aren't making progress, and I'm having a really hard time defending Pat Shermer. I'm running out of reasons. I, I, look, I, I look at the Dolphins, and I go, that's a team that's competitive and getting better. I look at the Cardinals, and that's a team that's not winning games, but they're competitive. They're getting better. And the Giants, I don't see a team that's competitive. I don't see a team that's getting better. I see a young quarterback who's making mistakes. He's got a not a great offensive line. But again, there's still other little details. Situationally, timeouts at the end of quarters. Um, into the halves, I mean, and you have penalty. You have just all kinds of weird little situational issues, and you go, yeah, the Giants don't look well coached, and that's concerning to me. So, man, I, I just got to acknowledge, I would keep Pat Shermer, but he does not make it easy. I'm running out of reasons. The only reason left I can think of to keep Pat Shermer is to help your young rookie quarterback and give him continuity to keep that team together and keep him running the same offense next year as he is this year. If I'm a Giants right now, I draft Chase Young if I can. He's a defensive end out of Ohio State. If I can't draft Chase Young, I draft an offensive lineman and continue to build the offensive line in New York. The Giants, if I'm their general manager, the way I build their football team, I say, hey, we got a quarterback, we got a running back, let's win in the trenches, let's build the defensive line, let's build an offensive line. That's what I would do with the Giants. But I have to acknowledge, again, it's getting harder and harder to defend Pat Shermer. All right, guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. When I return, we will talk about the Browns. We're going to talk about Drew Locke, the Broncos rookie quarterback, his first start in the NFL. We'll talk about Duck Hodges, the quarterback in Pittsburgh. And we will finish the show by talking about Chris Peterson, who oddly stepped down as a head coach of the, the Washington Huskies. My name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. 
All right, we are back. Um, I want to start with the Browns. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day, and uh, he asked me, should the Browns fire their head coach, Freddie Kitchens? I was like, yeah, absolutely. Isn't that obvious? And I realized, oh, maybe it's not obvious the Browns should fire their head coach. I was like, is it not clear? I thought it was clear, but apparently it's not. Um, It's funny to me how both the Dallas Cowboys and the Cleveland Browns are massively underachieving given the talent they have. And the consensus in Dallas is, oh, we got to fire our head coach. Jason Garrett's not good enough. We need a better coach who can use the tools we have in Dallas to win more football games. And yet in Cleveland, people are like, uh, should, should we fire him? Should, should we? It's like, yes, 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 yes. You got to move on. <laughs> like, I don't understand. Like, what, what is the hesitation here? It's so clear the Browns, in my opinion, are a very talented football team that are disorganized, they're undisciplined, they're messy, they're not being led in the right direction, they don't have the head coach and an offensive coordinator, frankly, putting their offense in the best position to be successful and take advantage of the incredibly good talent they have in Cleveland. The Browns are 5-7, and seven, underachieving. That's the head coach's fault. That's a disorganized organization, I guess is the word, with a bad head coach who's not doing good enough. And I have nothing, it's not personal against Freddie Kitchens. I see, he seems like a good man. I'd love to get a beer with him. Very friendly. I love his interviews. He seems like a nice person who's just in way over his head, who's not good enough to be the head coach of the Browns. It's a solid, talented roster who's, that's being mismanaged. And honestly, I think that the Vikings offensive coordinator, Kevin Stefanski, could come into Cleveland use the pieces they have on offense, and build an incredible, really good offense with the, the players and talent they have. Kevin Stefanski is a smart play designer. If I'm the Browns, I say, hey, uh, that guy in Minnesota, we're going to take him. He's our new head coach. So number one, you got to fire Freddie Kitchens. I don't, I don't ever, I really very rarely call for people's jobs. I think people criticize me of defending for people. Uh, people criticize me of defending guys for too long, Right. I'd fire Freddie Kitchens. The dude is in way over his head. And did you see the shirt he wore the other day, by the way? He wore a shirt. Freddie Kitchens wore a shirt this weekend talking about the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Browns like fight they got into a couple weeks ago. And the shirt said, Pittsburgh started it. To me, that's all you need. You go, okay, this guy doesn't get it. He's done. We're going to fire him. That's your head coach. Just imagine, would John Harbaugh of the Ravens, would Pete Carroll, would Bill Belichick ever be seen wearing a shirt like that? No way. Absolutely not, because it's stupid. It's dumb. That's a bad leadership move. Why would you do that? Why would you rile people up? Why would you even, just why would you go there? Don't wear that shirt. That right there was enough to me to go, okay, Freddie Kitchens isn't the guy you walk away. And people go, Zach, it's just a shirt. Or, well, yeah, Zach, but Freddie Kitchens isn't, uh, he's not John Harbaugh or Pete Carroll or Bill Belichick. He's his own person doing his own thing. Yeah, he isn't one of those guys. Absolutely, he's not one of those guys because those coaches win games. Freddie Kitchens does not. He's in, he's, mm. to me, it's clear Freddie Kitchens is not the answer in Cleveland. He's not good enough. And so the Browns need to fire their head coach and then begin to demand more from Baker Mayfield. Bluster is not enough. I learned a new word yesterday. I was talking to my dad. The word is bluster. Here's the definition of bluster. It means to talk in a loud, aggressive way with little effect. It's noisy, inflated talk. Or in Baker's case, because he's the Browns quarterback and their mascot is the dog, 
I would say that Baker is barking loudly with little to no effect. Baker makes a lot of noise, and he doesn't win. Baker needs to shut his mouth and get to work this offseason. He needs to put his head down and work. And if I'm in Cleveland, if I'm a Browns fan, I begin to demand more from Baker Mayfield. I begin to demand better leadership. I say stop with the quotes, stop with the headlines, shut your mouth, and get to work. I believe in Baker Mayfield a lot. I did a film analysis of him. I think I literally called it how Baker Mayfield can become an elite quarterback because I believe. I watch the film and I say the tools are all there. Arm strength, accuracy, velocity, understanding. It's all He has all the tools to become an elite quarterback, but he has to do the work. You don't just show up with good players around you and become an elite quarterback. I, I you know, last offseason, Baker Mayfield very clearly did a ton of commercials. I see him in Hulu ads, in insurance ads, in like I think like there's other other things too. Like I've seen so many commercials with Baker Mayfield this year. And it's I'm I mean, look, personally, like to be very, very honest, and I try to be fair, I actually really like the Baker Mayfield insurance commercials. There are ones where it's like at home with Baker Mayfield, and they actually make me laugh. There's one where he's like walking around the Brown Stadium, and it's supposed to be his home. And so he's walking around this gigantic facility, beep, and it's, he's trying to find a smoke alarm going off. I've done that same thing in my apartment, and I go like, I can't find where the smoke alarm is. And Baker Mayfield's doing the same thing on a larger scale. It made me laugh. And I acknowledge the at-home with Baker Mayfield commercials I think are hilarious and funny. But doing commercials in the offseason is not only time-consuming, it also drains your emotional energy. And it seems to me like Baker's agent, right? I'll put it on the agent instead of Baker Mayfield, but it seems like Baker's agent was like, hey, Baker, let's do as many commercials as we possibly can. And you know what that takes away from? Football. Do a commercial. Tom Brady does commercials. And Tom Brady's the most dedicated, hardworking guy I've ever, I think, literally ever to play in the NFL, as, as far as a quarterback, who spends time watching film every single day. He goes to Montana and trains, and that's all he does. I have no doubt Tom Brady watches a ton of film in the offseason. He's working all year round. And even Tom Brady does an Aston Martin commercial once a year. Fine. Do a commercial. Don't do 40 commercials. Baker Mayfield, I think he needs to work this offseason. Instead of worrying about commercials and this and that, this offseason he needs to put his head down and work. Go get a facility. Sit secluded. Get better footwork, do VR training, virtual reality where you study the offense, watch a bunch of film, get better, put your head down, make adjustments and get better because Baker Mayfield has the tools to succeed as the quarterback in Cleveland. He has what it takes in my opinion. And if you're a Browns fan, you had better begin to demand more because what Baker Mayfield's doing this year doesn't cut it. He's very talented, but he needs to do the work and become a better quarterback. And if you're in Cleveland, if you're a Browns fan, I challenge you, demand more from your quarterback. When you see him screwing around on social media, say, hey, Baker, what are you doing? That's not Your reaction shouldn't be like, oh, we love how much he talks, and we love how much he does this. If that's your reaction as a Browns fan, you, you're, you're wrong. <laughs> you got to, instead of getting excited when your quarterback mouths off and does headline at, stuff that begs for a headline, when you see Baker Mayfield on the media, you should go, Baker, shut up and get to work. It's not working right now in Cleveland, and it's because the quarterback, frankly, hasn't been good enough this year. You can blame coaches. You can blame whatever you want. But the truth is, in the offseason, Baker had better do the work. 
to get better, make adjustments, and improve. If you're a Browns fan, demand more from your quarterback next year. And this offseason, demand more from Baker Mayfield. Okay. Whew. Very simple to me. You just gotta you just gotta start expecting more. And you can't embrace what he's done in the past because it's not working. Okay, on Sunday, uh, we saw something really, really cool. On Sunday, we saw the Broncos quarterback, Drew Locke. In fact, the Broncos rookie quarterback, Drew Locke, make his very first start in the NFL. It's awesome. He was a second-round pick. And by the way, the game could not have ended any better. The Broncos hit a field goal as time expired to take the lead. They won 23-20 to because of that field goal. Uh, now, man, Drew Locke was awesome. I really liked watching him. He was 18 for 28 passing. Now, he only had 134 yards, but he did have two touchdowns and an interception. And right off the bat, I want to just give credit to the Broncos offensive coordinator, Rich Gangarello. People don't seem to appreciate how good he's done. Um, he caught my attention earlier this year. Uh, a guy named Brandon Allen started in his first ever football game in the NFL as quarterback for the Broncos. And uh, the game plan that Rich Gangarello designed, where he was being very safe, he was throwing the ball, but he was taking care of the quarterback. What I mean by that is Brandon Allen was regularly throwing to his first option. And what that means is they were designing an offense that said, hey, your first matchups, the best matchup, throw to that one. And I know that because I, I went and broadcasted Cal versus Washington State, and Cal had a backup quarterback in. Uh, and they had an offense very similar where they had Devin Monster throw to his first read almost every time, and they were called a great game where his first read was regularly the right one, which means it's good play design and good offensive coordinator. It's a good job of the offensive coordinator. And I got to talk to the guys at Cal, and they're like, yeah, that's, we, we knew what we had, and we had to hide our backup quarterback, and that's what they did. And when I saw that from Rich Gangarello, I said, okay. He did a similar thing. He took care of Brandon Allen, put him in a position to succeed, which is really all your job is as an offensive coordinator. Your job as an offensive coordinator is to call plays and design an offense that puts your players in the best position for them to succeed. That's exactly what they did on Sunday with Drew Locke. I want to talk about Drew Locke. Um, not only was, you know, he wasn't just throwing to his first read. That's, that's not all he did. He did a couple times come off. He went off and threw to his second or third read. There was a play on third and 15 where he had to pick the best matchup. I watched him go his eyes from the right back to the left. He threw to, uh, what's this guy's name? Oh, my gosh, their best receiver. I'm blanking on his name right now, but he threw a 10-yard hitch and clearly worked all the way across the field. It was a good job. And I was really, really impressed mostly with Drew Locke's ability to identify good matchups. There were multiple times where on third and short, the Broncos called a quick game, which means you, you get the ball out really quickly. And what that means is the quarterback has to identify, hey, which side has the right matchup? And I saw, I literally saw, I think it's third and two early in the game. Drew Locke catches the ball. He looks to the right, go, realizes, hey, this is man coverage. That means I should go back to the left and throw the slant coming underneath against man coverage. He did that. They completed it for a first down. I was like, that's great quarterback play from Drew Locke, a guy who clearly understands the defense, understands the matchup took the right spot, put the ball in the right position. I was like, I was, I was sitting there going, yes, Drew Locke, this is awesome. Now, I thought in the middle of the game, there was a stretch where Rich Gangarello calling plays was a little bit too conservative where they ran the ball three plays in a row and ended up punting. It's like, you can't first down, second down, third down, you punt the ball away. That happened multiple times. I was like, okay, 
come on, Rich. You're being a little too safe, a little bit too conservative with the lead here. Um, and Drew Locke also had an interception where they ran play action. Drew kind of stared it down. A linebacker dropped into the throwing lane. He threw the ball right to him. It's not great. It's a, young, it's a teaching moment for a young quarterback. Got to be better with your eyes, and you got to understand linebackers drop into coverage. Um, but all in all, man, I really think that um, Drew Locke was great. I really do. Uh, Cortland Sutton, that's the guy's name I was thinking of. Cortland Sutton had a great game. He had four catches for 74 yards and two touchdowns. He's awesome. He's, if you're a young quarterback, having Cortland Sutton for Drew Locke is a huge advantage. It's really, really good for him. Now, the Broncos did drop a couple passes that hurt Drew Locke's completion percentage. But all in all, man, I really thought Drew Locke's first start, it's only one start. He only threw 28 passes. There's not a lot you can say. But all in all, I thought it's a great first start. I'm excited to see where it goes. And uh, the minute the year ends, we're going to do a film analysis of Drew Locke. I can't wait for that day. Uh, we got, we'll have five games to look at and five games to analyze. going to be really fun. I really can't wait for that day. I'm excited to watch the film on Drew Locke as the year progresses. And um, I'm just excited by it, man. I really am. Uh, I also want to say he looks sharper than he did in college. Coming out of college, my concern with Drew Locke was just he made too many bad decisions and there were too many plays where I was like, ooh, that's, that's just like a kind of a boneheaded bad decision. And it's clear to me, mentally, he's done the work and really prepared hard in Denver. Uh, you know, Drew Locke injured his throwing hand thumb. He fractured it early in the year in the preseason. So he's been kind of sitting around for a long time, would not, not able to play, not able to contribute on offense. And if you're Drew Locke, what do you do in that situation? Well, it's clear to me he studied the playbook. Uh, you know, people say that he did VR training, which means virtual reality training where you put on a headset and you can use a helmet cam and you can just literally visualize running the offense. You can go through all your reads and it helps you be in the moment. I've done it. I've worn the headset and done it. And uh, it's just really a great way to train. That's what Drew Brees does. And it's very, very clear to me that Drew Locke worked really hard to prepare, to study the playbook, to study the defense he was playing against. He was ready for the moment. That's a credit to not only the coaching staff, but a credit to Drew Locke. And because of that work ethic, it was very clear on Sunday, a guy who put himself and prepared himself to be ready. If I'm a Denver Broncos fan, I don't know that Drew Locke's going to light it up this year. I think he's going to have moments of bad where he throws an interception like he did on Sunday. But overall, if you're a, if you're a fan of the Broncos and you're like, is our guy got it? I think he does. He clearly does the work. He clearly gets it. And if I'm a Broncos fan, I embrace Drew Locke. I say, yes, we got our guy. We got to give him patience. We got to let him continue to develop. But he's headed in the right direction. You have a guy who works his butt off, who does little things right, who can extend a play when he needs to. I was impressed by that on Sunday. If I'm a Broncos fan, I am elated. You got, finally, it seems like you got the right quarterback. I know it's one start, but you can still take a lot from that start by how well he was prepared how well he threw the ball, his understanding of matchups. There's a lot of little things you can take away and go, the clues are there. He's done the work. He's well-prepared. He's accurate. He can move a little bit. Everything I saw from Drew Locke was very positive. Even the bad stuff, it's like, okay, that's fine. But if I'm a Broncos fan, I'm happy and encouraged. You finally got the right quarterback in Denver. All right. Um, I want to talk about the Steelers' new starting quarterback, Duck Hodges. Duck Hodges, or Devlin, nicknamed Duck Hodges, is now the starting quarterback of the Pittsburgh Steelers, probably for the rest of the year. And, uh, man, I'm, I was so glad they finally benched Mason Rudolph. I was like, ah, oh, finally. It's been so clear to me for a long time that Duck Hodges 
is significantly better than Mason Rudolph. You know, Mason Rudolph really has struggled with accuracy. He's had a ton of turnovers. He makes bad decisions. And to me, Duck Hodges plays a far more clean style of football. He takes care of the ball. He's safer. And I, I really think Duck Hodges is a significantly better quarterback than Mason Rudolph. And the disappointing thing we've learned this year by watching the Pittsburgh Steelers, I'm not a Pitt Steelers fan. I just, I love quarterbacks. It's what I pay attention to the most. And we learned through this year that Mason Rudolph simply is not the guy in Pittsburgh. He doesn't have it. I'll do a film analysis if you want eventually down the road. But my takeaway from this year from Mason Rudolph is he just doesn't have what it takes. He's not accurate enough. He can't handle pressure in his face. He makes bad decisions. He's not clean. He just isn't. He's not enough. He's not the feature of the Pittsburgh Steelers. That's unfortunate. It's sad. But it's also the truth. Now, they're going to need a, they're going to need a franchise quarterback down the road. The the other thing, the other harsh reality is that Duck Hodges is not the long-term answer for the Pittsburgh Steelers. But I will say I really like him. Here's the best compliment I can give Duck Hodges. He should be a 10-year backup in the NFL. Duck Hodges in my opinion is going to have a long career in the NFL. He's not a starting quarterback. He's limited physically. His arm strength isn't really good enough. Uh, like he had some deep balls on Sunday against the Browns, but he really just, James Washington was making great catches down the sidelines for the Steelers. That's really more a great receiving play than his great throws from the quarterback. Um, but Duck Hodges, here's what he does well. He makes good decisions. He takes care of the ball. He doesn't force it into coverage. He throws the ball away when nothing's there. Uh, he had an interception. It looked like really it was just the wrong route. Like him and the receiver had some kind of miscommunication. Um, He's got an average arm. He's got a low ceiling. He's not, again, Duck Hodges is not the long-term answer at quarterback. But if I'm the Steelers, I give him a new contract, say, hey, Duck, we love you. We want you here for the next 10 years as our backup because Duck is the perfect backup. He's exactly what you want. He's not the guy you build around. His arm is limited again. He's kind of like Matt Moore, actually, the way Matt Moore played for the Kansas City Chiefs when Patrick Mahomes was hurt. He's safe, takes care of the football, doesn't make that huge mistake. He won't really win you the game but he also won't get rid lose of the game either. Um, he's a perfect quarterback coming off the bench. The Steelers will need to draft a new quarterback. They need to find a long-term replacement as the franchise quarterback for their team. But Duck Hodges is, if you had to say, hey, Zach, who do you pick? Mason Rudolph or Duck Hodges? Easily it's Duck Hodges because he plays a more clean style of football. He takes care of the ball. He's a far better quarterback than Mason Rudolph is. But a lot of that's just a testament to it. Mason Rudolph's not very good. And Doug Hodges is well-prepared. He makes good decisions. I really like him. I don't love him. He's not the long-term starter. I've said that. I'm kind of just repeating the same thing over and over again. I don't mean to. But my whole takeaway from watching Doug Hodges all year, really, the couple times I've seen him play, is that he's better than Mason Rudolph. He's not a starter long-term. But he's a great backup. He's a perfect backup. And he does a good job taking care of the football. I'm a big Doug Hodges fan. I love his story. Um... And I think, again, the best compliment I can give him is he should be a, a backup quarterback in the NFL for the next 10 years. Okay, the last story of the day I want to talk about is a weird one. University of Washington head coach Chris Peterson just stepped down. Kind of out of nowhere. It was shocking. It was bizarre. It was weird to me. Um, I have a couple theories about what happened and why it came from. Uh, now he's been he was 54 and 26 as UW's head coach. 
And uh, now this year has been a down year. This year, Washington is seven and five. Um, but I immediately thought when I saw what happened, I heard the news. I was like, is it, first of all, I was like, is this real? There was this, another story out of the state of Washington that uh, Washington State head coach Mike Leach was going to Ole Miss. That was turned out to be false. Um, now, <laughs> when I heard Chris Peterson resigned, I was I stepping down. I was like, really? And no, it's totally true. He really is. Um, and I had three theories. I was like, okay, there are three potential reasons why Chris Peterson would step down. Me and my friend were talking about it. Number one is that he was fired. Maybe UW said, we're tired of, we, we like you, Chris. We want to win even more. We want to get to the next level. You're not getting us there. Uh, and they forced him to resign. Maybe that's what happened. I don't think that's what happened, but it's possible that, hey, maybe they were just fed up with not winning. And they said, hey, Chris, we're going to let you leave on your own terms. We'll let you resign, but we want you out. We want to win more games. And the other thing that would support that theory is they were ready immediately to say, Jimmy Lake is now the head coach moving forward. The other option is maybe something bad happened. Who knows? Bad stuff happens behind the scenes all the time. There's, there's a reason why maybe that's the reason he stepped down. Here's the, the third reason. I think it's the most likely reason is that uh, I, I was talking to my dad about this because, you know, Boise State, uh, Chris Peterson was the longtime head coach of Boise State. He stayed there for eight years. He was very happy there for a long time. And he left Boise State to go to University of Washington. And my, da- my dad and I were talking. I was like, hey, dad, what if he just, what if he just wasn't enough for him? What if he left Boise State expecting Washington to be incredibly fulfilling and it just never was quite what he wanted? He, he played on the big stage. He made it to a college football playoff. He won the Pac-12 two times. Maybe he just realized, hey, this experience isn't as fulfilling as I thought it would be when I left Boise State. That's possible. It's possible that Chris Peterson just said, hey, you know, I thought this was going to be more than it was, and it's not. Now, I found an article that supports this theory, that, that third theory, and I think it's, in my opinion, that's the most likely theory is Chris Peterson's just a different kind of guy. Um, there's an article on Yahoo Sports. It's by Pete Thamel. It supports my third theory. The headline says, inside Chris Peterson's stunning decision to step down, and then in quotes, he's not wired like these other guys. And first what it does is it details uh, Chris Peterson's interview to be the head coach of USC in 2013. In, in 2013, USC was looking for a new head coach, the University of Southern California. They're in Los Angeles, and uh, they interviewed Chris Peterson. And the takeaway from that meeting was that USC and Chris Peterson realized that they were a bad fit together. They just, his personality wasn't what USC wanted and felt like they needed at the time, which is weird because Chris Peterson wins a lot of games, but the USC head coach is required to do more than just win games. There's a lot more that goes into that, sadly, because USC is a broken program. But they need, they need a guy who brings in you know, rock stars and p- famous people and shakes their hand and says all this weird Hollywood crap. And for Chris Peterson, just, it wasn't, he wasn't that kind of guy. And the article literally says that Chris Peterson was never going to become Hollywood. And then there's a quote from an unnamed friend of Chris Peterson. It says, he's not wired like these other guys for fame and money. He just likes coaching ball. And uh, personally, I have always loved Coach Pete. I think he's awesome. Um, I went to Washington State. I worked in the media there for Washington State. I was around Mike Leach, the head coach of Washington State, for a long time. And I have never been a huge fan of Mike Leach. I think his personality drives me nuts. I'm not a fan of him. In fact, you know, after the Apple Cup on Friday, he went after and really attacked the guy, a journalist in the media, which I'm not one to defend the media very often. The media is a lot, you know, the media is a big problem, too, with our world. 
Um, but the way Mike Leach attacked a guy, it was personal. It was kind of inappropriate and felt weird. And every time I was around Mike Leach in, in college and my time in the media there, I, it just made me always appreciate the guy across the state at the University of Washington, Chris Peterson. Chris Peterson is mild-mannered, he's polite, and he loves football. It seems like he does it for the right reasons. Um, I met Coach Pete at a camp in high school. And you got to understand that most Division I coaches are above. Like, they kind of sit in their ivory tower. Literally, like, a lot of coaches will literally just sit above and watch a camp, like, in a, a box or in a building somewhere, and they'll just kind of observe the best players and take down notes. That's not, a lot of D1 coaches let their assistant coaches do the dirty work when it comes to coaching football camps. And that is not at all what Chris Peterson did. Chris Peterson came down, was hands-on. He worked with all the guys. He was coaching guys in, you know, in person, face-to-face, talking to them, encouraging them. And it was clear to me, like, okay, Chris Peterson just loves the game of football. He loves being a football coach. It's what he was built for. And to me, that's like, ah, oh, like, that's so good to hear. Chris Peterson always struck me the time I was around him. I met him one time. Like, I'm not saying I know the guy. But through the media, through interviews, and then the one time I interacted with him in person, it was very clear. This is a guy who just seems like a good dude who cares and loves football. And, and I look around at what Chris Peterson has done. He won the Pac-12 twice in his six years at Washington. He made the college football playoff one time. Um, and I loved watching. When I was a kid, I loved watching Boise State, the Blue Turf. They had that, the Statue of Liberty. I loved watching Kellen Moore when I was a kid. And Chris Peterson was the head coach during all of that. And so I just want to wish the best to Coach Peterson. Um, he seems like a good man. I just That's my sense I get. And I hope he finds what he's looking for. It seems like he left Washington, and there's something he's looking for. There's something that that experience didn't bring him. And, uh, and personally, selfishly, <laughs> I hope that we get to see Coach Peterson coach again somewhere because I loved his career has been fun to watch. I loved him at Boise State. He was a blast to watch at Washington. He's like a good guy, mild-mannered, who loves football. And uh, I wish nothing but the best for Coach Peterson moving forward. All right, guys, that's all I have. Um, I really appreciate you. I do have one more segment I do at the end of every single podcast. If you're struggling, please go get help. Uh, Three years ago, my younger brother took his life. It was heartbreaking. It was painful. And I learned two painful lessons. Number one, if you're struggling, go get help. Uh, my brother never shared his struggles. The suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255. 1-800-273-8255. That is a suicide hotline. My brother suffered in silence. He never talked to anybody about his problems. Uh, one day I just walked into his room, found him dead on the floor. That's, that's terrible. I wish he'd come and talk to me. Here's the other thing, though. I didn't do a good enough job making it clear to my brother he could come talk to me. I needed to do a better job reaching out saying, hey, Zane, I love you. I'm here for you. Uh, I hung out with my brother a lot. We worked together. We played Halo once a week together. I came to his house. I literally would sit on the couch next to him. I went to play co-op Halo. And uh, I never did a good enough job breaking down the walls and saying, you know, Zane, we can talk about more than movies and video games and girls. And I never did. I never made it clear to him. And I didn't do a good enough job, I think, honestly, making it clear, I love you. I'm here for you. And if you're struggling, you can talk to me. So I want you to be very clear. If you're struggling, go get help. And if, you're, if you love the people in your life, make it clear to the people in your life you love them, that you're there for them, you love them. If they're having a hard time, they can talk to you. Don't be afraid to have conversations with a little more depth than just video games and movies and sports. Please, I'm begging you. If you're struggling, go get help. And make sure the people in your life know how much you love them, you care for them, and that you're there for them if they're the ones that are struggling. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. 
Thank you so very much for tuning in. Hope you have a great day. And uh, ba-dum bum, bam, we are. We're not done. I have a surprise for you guys. On I'm recording the next podcast very late on Wednesday night, which means that uh, you're not going to hear it till Thursday morning. But someone sent me film of a quarterback in college, which means that very early, unexpectedly, you're going to get a really cool film analysis of a quarterback that I didn't think I was going to be able to get film on. It'll be really fun. It'll be really cool. I'm really excited. Uh, now, with that, uh, that little teaser is all I have. But um, bum, bam, we are done.